Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. This is Brandy Skilache. Today, I have with me David Perry. He is a freelance journalist covering politics, history, education, and disability rights, and has bylines at CNN, New York Times, Atlantic, Guardian, and many more. He and his food scientist wife live in the Twin Cities with their children, one of whom has Down syndrome, and Perry also plays in an Irish rock band. We're so glad to have you, David. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me today. You know, I we were just talking today as we're recording is actually the inauguration of a new president in the United States, though this won't air for some time afterwards. I hope that we will still be um, reaping the benefits of a change in administration. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't want to say things can't get worse, but <laughs> they can. But I do, in fact, expect a number of things to get slightly better fairly quickly just by having a little stability and a little leadership, particularly around the public health crisis where exactly. the the need is acute. And in fact, the power of the federal government is significant. And, yeah. um, you know, this is these are there are problems that are solvable and the solutions are not secret. And it just hasn't happened. Right. Exactly. And in fact, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about today is how the covid crisis has um, has brought some things to greater visibility on the show so far this year, we've had people like Alice Wong, we've had a number of other disability scholars, people who are working in that area, talking about the ways in which the pandemic has both um, risen some issues to the fore where people can see them that are normally invisible and yet simultaneously made issues of accessibility in the disability community worse. And I, I wondered, I know you've had some personal experiences in this area. Sure, I mean, I, I think, you know, what people like Alice are saying and, and my mantra, my specific mantra over this whole time is that um, anything that's been made accessible due to the pandemic has to stay accessible. Mm -hmm. um, I am beginning very cautiously to kind of think about post-pandemic accessibility and what lessons we've learned and what we can do. And, and you know, someone like Alice Wong, and I hope everyone goes back and listens to that if they haven't heard it, because um, she's just extraordinary, you know, people have been talking about the, re the requests and demands and rights of disabled people around virtual access, whether it's for work or for socializing or for conferences or any number of things or teaching, learning. Um, they, they were reasonable requests that were just ignored or turned down or we had to fight for them. And mm -hmm. then the pandemic came and everything went virtual right away. Um, and we want to keep that. On the other hand, virtual doesn't always work. And so, mm -hmm. you know, my my son has Down syndrome. I've written a lot about the K through 12 education aspects, um, particularly focused around around my ch my own children and then moving out from there. He, he's he's autistic. He has Down syndrome. He's non-speaking and remote education just does not work for him mm -hmm. unless he has a person in the room with him. And so the first thing we did over the summer is we fought 
and 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 you know we we lobbied and we we you know through our state representatives and every contact we could we and by we i mean my wife and i but also lots of other people in 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 minnesota where i live cuz this stuff happens on a statewide basis we got permission for school districts to send aids into our home and then school districts said well we don't want to do that cuz we don't want to expose our we don't want to expose our staff to coronavirus and we said okay and we got permission for school districts to pay a third party provider to send aids into our home because mm-hmm. we already have sort of direct service professionals supporting my son um and the the Minnesota school department of education said all right school districts may do this but notice how that's a may and mm. not a must right and our school district just said no so it's just one thing and there's a lot of you know we could un- kind of unpack I don't know, that'd be too exciting, but we could unpack kind of the, <laughs> the government levels and the policy levels that are going on here. There's there's school districts, there's county, there's state, there's federal, there's both the Department of Education and there's the Department of Health and Human Services. There's a lot of different components here. And there are lots of people who could who could have untied this knot. Right. And mostly the knot has stayed tangled. And ultimately my son did not is not getting provided a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment, which is what mm-hmm. he's legally entitled to. Um, and we could sue, but, you know, that's a multi tens of thousands of dollars process to sue. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a time in which all the inequalities that are being brought into visibility already existed, but right. they're becoming more visible and where there are divides, the divides are getting wider, and the divides are becoming um, sort of more, more, more and more acute. I think. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think this is an important moment to talk about what we mean by accessibility, because um, one of the problems that I've been made aware of is just how much accessibility is a is a tick box in many people's minds. Just like, okay, did we do the accessibility thing? Great. But that means something very different to different people. It means one thing. If if what you mean is, can I get into a building? You know, is there a ramp? It means something very different if it's, I have a learning disability or I need special um, situation. My my nephew actually struggles with this a little bit too. The online learning is not going well because he he has reading difficulties and other kinds of things that require very specific hands-on and generally face-to-face instruction. Um, But accessibility can also mean who has the ability to even access and fight those fights, you know, um, who has the wherewithal and the time and the education to even enter into some of the dialogues. I mean, it sounds endlessly complicated what you've been dealing with. And I can't even imagine, you know, someone with say less high education or less uh, investment or, or education about the systems in which they live trying to navigate that incredibly complex situation. You know, I have made exactly that point to my state representative, who I think is is great, but has not solved it. And that may not that's not really her fault, I think. But I made that to her. I made it to the, the, the head of the school board. I made it to all the, the school districts. I, I keep saying it that, you know, I here I am talking to you as someone with at least some presumed expertise in disability and, and law and accessibility and these things. And I do have some expertise. My wife is a scientist. I'm a first language, you know, English is my first language. Um, I don't know who the person will be in the Biden White House, but the, the, the final disability head in the Obama White House is a friend of mine. Like I can, I can call her up. 
Um, and say, Maria, help me. Maria now runs the a, uh, American Association of Persons with Disabilities. I mean, a lot of people have Maria's contact, but, you know, I, I know yeah. the people who f- are formative in policy and influence on both the state and national level, and we're just not getting anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I keep saying, you know, if I'm not getting anywhere, I want you to think about all the people right. who are, who you know, who don't have my access and don't have my means and don't have my knowledge and connections and how badly it's going for them. Um, so you got to open the door for my son, but we got to hold, we got to, we got to, we got to build a ramp. We got to open the door. Yeah. We got to do a lot mm-hmm. of these things and it's just not happening. Right. Um, and, and I am afraid that, you know, when this is all over, there's going to be a lot of, first of all, it's going to be a multi-year process for this to be all over. And there's right. going to be a lot of um, pressure to just pretend it didn't happen and to go back to where we were. And we just, there's been too much lost. Um, and there have been too many problems exposed. Exactly. And I think one of the other things you mentioned is that um, the gaps are getting wider. And I think that's absolutely true. You take someone who has, uh, who's, who finds learning online easy or is self-taught in various other ways. And that person, you're right, a year from now or so when, when we are able or two years, however long it takes before we can <laughs> go back to regular school, um, they might just pick up and be like, yeah, it's, I haven't lost much. That's going to be vastly, vastly varied across categories, across um, people who are already suffering because they are, are fiscal minorities or, you know, gender or racial minorities um, have disabilities, et cetera. They are falling further and further behind with every hour, basically, that that school is running. And so you're right. When When things go, quote unquote, back to normal, you're going to see those gaps are going to be writ large. You know, there's going to be people who've literally lost over a year of, of advancement in terms of what they've been able to learn in school and are not, it's not a level playing field. And when you, you mentioned this, you know, it should be this fair, equal access to education. Um, it, it's not, it's not there. It already wasn't there. And now right. it's not there and it's big. I actually think no one is going to just bounce back. Uh, I do think that we are in general underestimating there will be people whose test scores stay fine. And if you measure their learning, they will have made sort of measurably the right amount of mm-hmm. progress. But the, the layers of trauma for really mm. I mean, for everyone, I, I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about children and, and trying to do some good writing around K through 12 education and a little bit on higher ed. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about my relatively neurotypical, extremely, extremely verbal, um, fast reading daughter and all the trauma she's exhibiting. Right. And, uh, and that she can articulate to me. And so we can talk about it, but it's there. Um, I don't know where her academic progress will be, uh, in, in 18 months, whether she'll still be on track, but the trauma will be there for her and for everyone. Um, but I, I mean, we just have more and more data to fall, you know, how far, uh, children from marginalized backgrounds were falling behind kind of four to six months, whereas more privileged children, particularly around race, but not only around race, also we're looking at class and access to data and English language and other such things. More privileged children are, are kind of one to three months behind. So everyone's behind, but some people mm-hmm. are falling behind faster. And, you know, we're not we're not done, right? We're halfway through the school year and we're nowhere near back to normal. No. If the vaccine process doesn't accelerate significantly, we will not be back to normal next August either. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I keep saying in April, I said we needed a plan for August 2020. 
which didn't happen. And I understand why it didn't happen. It's a crisis. In August, I said we need to plan for January. Right now, I'm saying we need to plan for next August. Mm-hmm. And I've just not seen that happen. Right. I'm not right. seeing the people who are in significant enough leadership positions that they could stop thinking about tomorrow and start thinking about six months from now right. doing that. And again, there's a crisis. I understand the, the urge to think about tomorrow, but mm-hmm. but someone needs to start thinking about next August. Someone needs to start yeah. thinking about the the extra millions, probably, of students who are going to get Fs in their classes this year. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just saw a stat, a, 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 stat, a local school district. I, I haven't seen any national numbers. Maybe someone listening to this will find them. A local school district just north of me um, went from something like, 10% of people failing to 20% of people failing. Wow. And from 5% of students getting two or more Fs to 13% of students oh. getting two or more Fs, right? So these aren't, it's not like 90%, but the jump from 5% of all students to 13% That's is a massive. big jump. It's, it's a big jump, jump, right? That is hundreds or thousands of students. And that is playing out in every school district across the country. And and what are we going to do, right? Mm-hmm. What where where is the plan to say hey let's waive this hey where let's not let this affect college admissions let's let's cancel all the SATs let you know and i i just don't i just don't see that big conversation happening well in you know in addition to the trauma that is um right there's the trauma of actually living through a pandemic particularly a pandemic where there doesn't appear to be much leadership or steerage um, then there's the trauma of the, students are traumatized by failing their classes. They they are. I remember a student being a student myself, and it wasn't that I always got A's or anything, but when there's so much pressure to perform and you constantly see yourself falling behind, that's a trauma that we're you know that's going to to impact their their ability, their desire to learn for a long time. And when you have schools pretending as though these problems don't exist. And I shouldn't say schools in general, but when there's a, a desire, I think it's this 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 almost morbid desire to return to more normal at any cost and yeah. then ignoring all of that other stuff that leads up to it. Um, it's it's really it's going to come back. This is not going away. You know, when you go to you, I'm, you're going to see college students years from now who are carrying the trauma of this time period. And so I think that that's something that um, they also students normally the the support systems that they have include their colleagues, their own uh, people, their own age, which they have been largely divorced from during the pandemic as well. And so I think there's it's a many headed beast. And I don't really feel like a lot of the focus, at least in the media, has not been on these other pieces. You know, there's a lot of talk about the vaccine and rolling it out. And that's true. And that's good. But there's all of these other traumas that are going to need to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to I I wrote a piece about this for The Washington Post. I've been I've been pushing the term Gen C as in generation COVID. I didn't come Mm. up with that, Um, but I've been trying to, to suggest it, not because I care about the terminology, but because I want people to understand that particularly for kids. um, Again, that's where I'm focused, particularly for kids, that this is going to be the single most significant event as a generation. Obviously, individuals have whatever happens in their lives as a generation that that's going to happen at least so far that this is going this is a generation defining right. moment in their childhood and i think about i think about my dad who was in his late 80s and the ways in which living through the depression mm-hmm. shaped him his whole life um 
and his parents too that my my grandparents that because they were young parents during the depression the way that shaped their whole life mm-hmm. and i think that that this moment is of uh, this pandemic is going to have a similar kind of decades and decades long influence yeah. i don't think that it's easy to predict what that influence will be i'm a historian and as a historian i try not to be a futurist right i think <laughs> right. that fact, predicting the future is 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 a, is is a good gig but kind of a, a sucker's game um, <laughs> so so the specifics i think is very are very hard to predict but that there will be decades long patterns of shaping culture and economics and policy um i i think is undeniable uh yeah. and and it doesn't have to be bad right we could go from this moment to reshape how we handle public health to rethink our reliance on testing um as right. and grades uh from you know kindergarten through grad school we could um build more nimbly in terms of responding to other kinds of crises including the the coming the ongoing but intensifying climate crises i mean right. there are, there are ways we could roll out of this towards a more a more equal more accessible more nimble society um but that's going to take a level of leadership and and yes. and foresight that i i definitely don't see happening today right and i think that i do hope i have hopes i think you have to that we but if we're loud enough about it <laughs> that we'll be able to influence you know those kinds of things it's no guarantee but i am really excited to be able to talk to you about it especially here on the podcast i i'm actually hoping maybe we can do this again in a few months and kind of take stock um once more because our listeners are people who are in these fields and we are uh, there's a lot of us it's just that we don't always seem to have the power that we need or want in order to affect these changes so i think these conversations have to happen it's important that they're happening and i'm just so glad that you were with us today to share your views about them i think this is this is vital to the way we recover if we recover from something like this thank you so much for being with us david it's really nice to talk to you and to our listeners once again thank you for being part of the medical humanities conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore bmj.